we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And our episode this week is timely. We're going to be addressing this issue of Afghan refugees, refugee using that in the broadest sense of the word. And we've got two people who have written about this for the center and know a good deal about it. First, Nayla Rush, who's a senior researcher here at the center, a PhD in migration studies, and focuses on the refugee resettlement issue for the center. And she's written a couple pieces that relate to this. The links will be in the show notes about the scope of this issue. In other words, how many people are we potentially talking about evacuating from Afghanistan who worked for the U.S. or others? And also has written a longer piece on an Iraqi refugee program of which there is a counterpart for Afghans and how that was suspended because of fraud and what that might mean. So Nayla is going to start by talking about some of the numbers. And then our second guest is Dan Cadman, who is a fellow here at the center and has something like three decades, maybe more, I forget exactly the number, of experience in the old INS and in ICE, working both in the field and in policy areas, and has a lot of experience and has written extensively on security-related issues, fraud-related issues, that sort of thing. And so we're going to start with Nayla, and then Dan will talk about some of the concerns, the specific concerns with regard to the Afghans that we're bringing here, and then we'll kind of open the conversation up. And so, Nayla, if you could give us just a kind of overview of what are the numbers of people we're talking about. Yeah, thanks, Mark. When we listen to the news or read about this the Afghan uh, crisis and what's happening there and how people want to leave and how the United States is already evacuating Afghans and Americans from there, there are misleading numbers a lot of times. We don't know. We say we talk about refugees, even though we are evacuating not only well, potential refugees, maybe, but we are evacuating SIVs. Explain what an SIV an means. An SIV is a special immigrant visa given to Afghan. It was also given to Iraqis, but to Afghans who have collaborated somewhat closely or randomly with U.S. forces in Afghanistan and who, because of this employment, feel threatened in their own country. So SIV visas, this program has been running for the past 15 years or so, has two subsections in it for Afghans. You have two SIV programs for Afghans who worked for the U.S. in Afghanistan. The first one that people mention a lot is 
the SIV program for the Afghan translators. This program is only capped at 50 applicants a year. That is principal applicant, meaning the person who is working with the U.S. forces and if feels threatened can apply for this program. And he can also get his family to come with him to the United States. So it's 50 a fiscal year. The past 15 years, we have admitted some 2,000 Afghans through this program, of whom 1,400 family members. So, so the point is there is that this is the group of Afghans that everybody talks about. Everybody leads their comments with, well, we have to protect these people who risk their lives translating for American soldiers. And yet it's a handful of people, basically. It's a, handful it's a very of, small population. Yes, it's a handful of people. And let's say none of these 50 Afghans were given SIVs this fiscal year. All could come this year, uh, before the end of the year. And let's say... Family members, I calculate family members as time three or four by the official numbers. So the total, the total with the family members would be 250. Right, yeah. The so whole it's a very small year. program. And, and so what's the larger SIV the program? The larger SIV program for Afghans is the one for Afghans who worked for or on behalf of the U.S. government in Afghanistan and, of course, is scared of repercussions because of this employment. Now, what kind of people does that cover? These are civilians we're talking about. They might be drivers, in other words. They might be clerical workers. Anybody who worked for or on behalf of the U.S. government in Afghanistan could fit into this umbrella. And the on behalf of part, just to clarify, is for contractors. In other words, people who were not employed by the U.S. government but were working for a company that was, for instance, say, doing construction work or food services or something like that. Yeah. So this program admitted throughout the past 15 years 74,000. That is principal applicants and family members. This program can admit 34,500 Afghans only, meaning that's a, a closed count. Once these numbers are filled, the program ends on its own unless Congress increases the numbers which the Congress did recently because the program cap was 26,500 and 8,000 were added recently. Right. So now we have 34,500 visas, SIV visas under this program available for SIVs. Well, that was my question when I wanted to see how many are still coming or came or what are we talking about when we say evacuate Afghan people who helped us. Because there's a big difference between evacuate Afghan people or evacuate Afghan people who helped us and because of us are now threatened in their own country. So according to official data that's available on my blog, you can go in and check, there are roughly some 11,000 SIVs remaining spots under this program. And then they just added some more. Thank you, Mark. The numbers are for March 31st. So 8,000 more that we just added. That's not 19,000. Okay, 19,000 Afghans can come with SIVs, add family members. I roughly calculated a total of 90 to 100,000. Okay, so we're talking 100,000 potential SIV Afghan immigrants. Yeah, that people that we need to evacuate. Right. Okay. Now, 
on another issue, and that's not clear, actually. It's not that we are not clear. It's even the U.S. officials are not clear on that. There are already pending cases, SIV cases. There are around 19,000. So, in other words, people who applied, applied and they have paperwork in the pipeline. People who applied and because of the backlog and the processing and the time, their application is still on hold and they don't know the outcome. So, we're not sure if these spots that are available are going to be filled by these pending applications or it's going to be new applications coming in and then what do you do with both when right. the cap is is overwhelmed. I'm guessing that they are going to evacuate people with pending applications and they will come here or to other countries for processing. Already some have arrived to military bases here in the United States. But another point is if they are processed and denied, what's going to happen? There's the, of course, everybody is familiar with the UN no refoulement principle, which, which means you cannot send back any immigrant to a country where he might face or she might face harm. So let's assume we're talking about the open slots and then the pending slots. I think some will overlap, but my guess is it it could be 150,000 in total. These are Afghans who helped the U.S. forces. Another category is Afghans who applied who are not eligible for an SIV visa because of time limits, etc. They don't have enough documentation. Recently, the Biden administration has ordered that they can come to the United States or apply to come to the United States onto the direct access or what we call priority to resettlement program. And they can come here as refugees. And then this number is part of the refugee resettlement program. For people who don't know, the refugee resettlement program has a ceiling determined by the president of the United States with uh, consultation. Consultation. With Thank you. That's the word I was looking for with Congress, etc. Trump had set the fiscal year 2021 for 15,000. The, the refugee ceiling, Biden increased it to 62,500. We only have August and September left for this fiscal year. Around 6,500 maybe have only arrived. So we have plenty of room to admit more people. However, I don't think because of the way this resettlement works and the processes that the 62,000 will be filled. I'm guessing another 5,000 maybe by the end of the year. Another category of people that we, when we say refugees, all, all these that we're talking about, these are SIV, so special immigrant visa, who are not eligible, you can apply for refugees, okay? under the direct access. However, there's a whole different population who did not collaborate or help U.S. forces or allies forces in Afghanistan. These are millions of people now are fearful of a Taliban rule probably and might want to apply for refugee status and leave that country. We're talking about millions. We're talking about vulnerable women and children, etc. So basically, we're talking about everybody else in Afghanistan. Everybody. The other, the, everybody. The other 39 million people, 38 million people in Afghanistan. Yeah. So there's no way that the United States can evacuate all these numbers. So SIVs, roughly with their family members, 100,000. The translators, a couple of hundred. 
maybe a few thousand for the resettlement this year. The resettlement ceiling, refugee ceiling, will be increased next year, as Biden had already promised, to some 125,000. I'm sure it'll be closer to 200,000 now that they have the Afghan crisis. Right. So basically, I mean, even with these details, we still really don't know how many people are going to fly into the United States. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know, and they don't know. And they don't know. Yeah, and they don't know. So, Dan, what are some of the issues that all this evacuation, all these people from Afghanistan raise? Because everybody's been talking about how we are going to be vetting these people to make sure they're not affiliated with the Taliban or not problems in some other way. But, you know, is that realistic? How does that work? If you could give us a little overview of that. I think it's completely unrealistic. Keep in mind, pretty much the entire duration of our two-decade stay in Afghanistan, one of the problems that our military has faced are these so-called green-on-blue attacks, which is to say Afghan soldiers and interpreters and translators, as ostensibly our friends and allies, attacking the U.S. military and NATO forces there. Uh, For instance, in uh, 2012, the International Force Commander John Allen said that about half of the green-on-blue attacks that year alone were carried out by Taliban infiltrators. Now, keep in mind, that was in-country, and these were people who had been vetted theoretically, ostensibly, to the highest standards because they knew that these people would be working closely side-by-side with American and other NATO forces in the country. And if half of the green on blue attacks were carried out by Taliban infiltrators then, there's no reason to think that our vetting is going to be any better at all from thousands of miles away where even the limited window that we had into the countryside and the villages and the tribes when we were physically present as a force disappears is beyond risible. It's just, it's appalling to think about. And according to the State Department's own quarterly reports and annual reports, on SIV processing, the number of people denied as opposed to approved is incredibly high, incredibly high. Oh, really? Even with our limited access to background data? Absolutely. Wow. The denials, I read one estimate that it was close to 80%. Is that right? I don't know. But I do believe that it was over 50%. And the primary reasons for those denials were fraud, were criminality or association with extremist groups, whether it was the Taliban or others. So if this was going on while the American embassy was fully staffed and had cooperation of U.S. and international force military, had CIA officers and other intelligence organizations working together to ferret out this information, if the denials were so high then, they theoretically should be that high once they're in the United States. But let's be honest, as I said, the window to look into Afghanistan, it's irising closed very quickly. If not already closed altogether. Exactly. I was reading that as of last Friday, it may have been the president himself who said that they had evacuated 17,000. Now that number has certainly gone up since then, but the point was this, of the 17,000, only 2,500 were American citizens, 2,500. And so of those remaining thousands, you have to ask yourself, who were they? 
at a time when Americans and Afghans were being harassed, beaten, threatened by Taliban at checkpoints. So who exactly is getting through the checkpoints to get onto those aircraft? I read where one C-130 pilot just accepted anybody rather than leave them on the ground or risk them trying to put themselves in the wheel well or someplace else dangerous. But if it has gotten to the point of such chaos that they're throwing anyone onto the airplanes, we have no idea what is headed in our direction. Yeah, because they're saying that they're SIV applicants is the way it's put. I mean, if they're just sort of anybody who climbs up the ramp onto the plane gets in, who knows if they're SIV applicants actually or not. I find it incredible to believe that they're all SIV applicants. And I think in the fullness of time, we're going to discover that a lot of them weren't. We have to ask ourselves also, when are we going to see the demographics? When are we going to see how many of these are men aged between, say, 25 to 45 versus women and children? And are we going to be able to vouchsafe that they were actually helping the United States or its partners or even its contractors? And as you pointed out, Mark, keeping in mind the scope of this basket has widened and widened, we're now talking about someone who may have cooked meals at a, you know, for contractors who were building secure perimeters for the Afghan police or military or for the U.S., or they may have been the janitors or the ditch diggers or the concrete pours. Right. All of those people under this widened criteria are going to be trying to get themselves onto airplanes and out. And at some point, we have to ask ourselves, do we really have that large a moral responsibility to people like that? I'm not sure that we do. Uh, it is not clear to me. And It gets so easy to use hired phrases about, you know, those who stood by us ready to take a bullet when in many instances, probably the majority of instances, that was nothing like what happened. I mentioned this in my National Review piece that we'll also put in the show notes. A significant number of the people who got these SIVs for, you know, the larger, the non-translator SIVs, For the State Department, the State Department Inspector General, I believe it was, did a report, and what they found is that the Kabul embassy actually had trouble with turnover because people were basically taking clerical jobs for the embassy in order to get the SIV. That was the whole point. And so as soon as they were eligible, they applied. As soon as it came through, they left. And so the Kabul embassy was had this staff turnover because the employment was not based on some kind of motivation for helping America. It was a way of getting a green card and getting out of Afghanistan. And one of the things that Nayla mentioned about, and my French is atrocious, so bear with me, but <laughs> non-refoulement, non-return, this principle of non-return, Right. what that means basically is that once these people are brought here under any circumstance, whether it's SIVs or Joe Blow, who happens to get thrown on an airplane, during this fire brigade bucket toss, once they're in the United States, even if it's in a parole status, it's going to be near impossible to send them back. And even if it's because they have alleged affiliations with extremists and terrorists, our track record as a country isn't particularly good at getting people like that out. Not at all. Literally, once the plane touches down on the runway in the United States, it's game over. They're here for the rest of their lives. 
Naila, did you have something to add? Yeah, I wanted to say that it's uh, important to know that SIVs, once accepted, the application is accepted, they get automatic green cards the first day. They are in the United States as SIVs. Yeah, once they get, yeah, once, once they it's get approved. It, not, yeah. N- yeah, usually right. they're approved abroad and then right. they come here and they're given. It's not like refugees where they have to wait one year. So these SIVs, once approved, will be given green cards. Now, revoking a green card, that's also perhaps more difficult too. Yeah, but even if you revoke it in a sense, and this was Dan's point, it almost doesn't matter what color the document is that they have from the government. If they get to live here because we can't send them back, it's all the same to you know. What to I'm us. saying is it's very difficult to revoke a green card. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that. yeah. Yeah, and even if there are some foreign countries that are willing to work with the United States to provide temporary shelter pending the re-transport or continued transport onto the United States, that's not a forever proposition. There will be a great deal of pressure from those governments. And the only one that I'm really aware of right now is Qatar. And if we don't move pretty quickly to move them on, there's going to be, uh, I think, hell to pay. But that's the kind of pressure that virtually ensures that whatever vetting capacity there is, however diminished, becomes politically untenable because of the pressure from the top down, move them, move them. Right, exactly. Yeah. In fact, I think we made a deal with Colombia as well to house several thousand, again, pending our background checks. And that's the assurances that people have been given publicly, the government has given, that these people are being vetted abroad before they come to the United States. But like you said, if they're in Qatar or Germany, some of them are going to Ramstein in Germany or in Colombia or anywhere else, and we turn up something that says, okay, well, this person's a problem, we're still, I mean, what are we going to do? We're not going to leave them there because like you said, the government there is going to say, hey, you know, we agreed to house these people on a transitional basis. You're not sticking us with them. And so we're going to end up bringing them here, even if they fail vetting as flawed as the vetting is. Virtually guaranteed. And ironically, once they have been paroled in, even if they've been paroled in because they're inadmissible for security grounds, once they're physically in the United States and certain constitutional attachments, they gain those attachments simply by their physical presence here. For instance, the Supreme Court's Flutie decision says, you can only hold them in detention a certain period of time, right. after which they're going to end up on the streets of America, at which point tracking these kinds of individuals is going to be nightmarish for American security and counterintelligence and police agencies. It's going to be horrible. Yeah, this idea of you know keeping an eye on terrorists. So we're not going to lock them up, but we're going to do you know intensive surveillance. Well, that's possible, but it's very labor intensive. And how long can you keep that kind of thing up? I mean, I remember reading a piece about France where they said they had X number of potential jihadists under surveillance. And they said, look, we're barely able to keep up with these people. There's all kinds of other people we've had to decide not to keep up with just because you can't keep any significant number of people under surveillance. And so it's guaranteed that there's going to be people that we have concern about terrorism, that we just basically kind of keep our fingers crossed and hope it works out for the best. And all of our discussion so far, we haven't even touched on the 
significant health dimension that attaches to many of these individuals. The Afghan population has some longstanding, serious health issues. COVID has decimated their population in recent months. Can we really believe that they're being COVID tested before being put on airplanes where they're going to breathe the same air for a long flight as anyone who may not be infected? No, of course they're not. Right, yeah. They're going to share that same closed airspace in that airplane. Hemorrhagic fever is uh, endemic in Afghanistan, and that's frightening. Right. There's another issue I'm thinking about here. We're talking about those the U.S. is or will be evacuated from Afghanistan. I'm also thinking about all the thousand, perhaps the millions, who are just going to leave Afghanistan as refugees and go to neighboring Iran or Turkey. I heard yesterday on, on the news, Turkey is expecting a lot of Afghans. And remember... In other words, to make their way through yeah. Iran and get to Turkey as yeah. illegal aliens. Yeah, and then perhaps ask for, for refugee status and then perhaps want to travel to Europe and Turkey might play a game here as we open the border, we don't open the border. All this to say is that at one point, if we keep our border open from this side as it is, as fluid as it is, we might end up having Afghans coming all the way who have left Afghanistan, and, and we don't know who we will. To the Mexican border, yeah, in other words. That's, yeah, that's, that's something that talking. another uh, one of our analysts with the center, Todd Benzman, has written some about. The number of Afghans caught at the Mexican border has been relatively low up to now, but it's almost certain there's going to be more. And given our current border policies, where in July, for instance, the majority of people apprehended by the Border Patrol were let go into the United States. So anyway, I mean, it's similar to what Europeans faced in 2015, and they actually are worried about that. In fact, Greece has just completed apparently a physical barrier on its border with Turkey and Thrace. And one of the ways that Greeks talked about it was to make sure no Afghans, illegal aliens, get through because now with the collapse of the uh, American controlled government there, more people are going to want to probably leave. And keep in mind that when an Afghan presents himself at the U.S. border, he gets in and then he presents himself to be apprehended, Right, turns himself in. At that point, all he has to say is, I fear to return. The asylum process kicks in. And unlike the refugee process, there is no ceiling. Asylum numbers are unlimited by law. There is no cap. There is no nothing. And so in some ways, that, that actually solves a lot of problems for people if they can manage to work their way through some of the many established smuggling routes through South America, Central America, and up and in. They're virtually guaranteed that they're going to be released for a significant period of time so that even if ultimately their asylum request is denied, they'll be nearly impossible to find. And the Biden administration itself has been fighting in court to ensure that the former administration's remain in Mexico policy for people seeking asylum is dismantled. So that virtually guarantees that the order of the day will be catch and release for Afghans as surely as anybody else. And that just underlies this broader issue of once they've stepped foot on U.S. territory, it's game over. In other words, it doesn't really matter ultimately whether they have parole, whether with a work permit, whether they get asylum, whether they're turned down for it, 
whether they're applicants for SIVs and turned. In other words, all of that is kind of, I mean, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it is kind of bureaucratic minutia because the, the bottom line issue is that the person's here for as long as he wants to stay here. In other words, it's, it, the rest of it is just frosting, you know, the color of your car. In a sense, it doesn't matter. If you get off a plane in the U.S., if you sneak across the border, whatever it is, you're here. And yeah. that's the, ultimately, that's the real issue. It's going to be, I think, confounding to the American public at large over the next few years as the dimensions of this catastrophe reveal themselves in ways that aren't immediately obvious now, as obvious as much of it is, as some of it unfolds and we see the repercussions of the way this has taken place, the so-called evacuation, I think people are going to be just completely dismayed. Also then remember that perhaps before, Afghans who worked for the U.S. or the Allied forces did not want to come to the U.S., did not apply for an SIV, they were fine. They needed a job, it was probably well paid, and that's it. Now, with the withdrawal of U.S. forces and the Taliban ruling there, everyone who perhaps worked for a week for the U.S. will want to apply for an SIV. So right. the numbers are going to be, that's nothing. Dan is right. I think we're just starting. It's the tip of the iceberg kind of thing. In fact, I think, and that's an interesting point, is that you know a lot of people are going to try to get out they go to Pakistan, for instance, maybe if they're in the north, go up to Tajikistan or something like that. But some of those people will be the people you mentioned who had worked for U.S. or European organization in one way or another, hadn't thought about leaving because it was, you know, worked out okay. But then they're going to want to apply for an SIV from Pakistan. There's going to be constant pressure, I think, on Congress to keep adding more potential visas to the pool of people who can get those SIV visas. The last thing I just wanted to briefly talk about, and this is one of Nate's pieces on this, was about the Iraqi P2 refugee program. And just to make clear, the P2, the priority two thing means you are deemed a refugee if you're a member of the group. and You don't have to prove individual persecution. You're just automatically considered a refugee if you're in this group. The Iraqi version of that was suspended because of fraud. Dan, by the Biden administration. Yeah, by the Biden administration, exactly, earlier this year. And so, Dan, you wrote about the potential for fraud in this program. Are there any specific kind of, in other words, what kind of fraud is there? Apart from the security threats, what kind of regular fraud exists in this kind of program? Their records are poor to begin with. They're easily forged or counterfeited or purchased from corrupt petty officials in villages and in provincial capitals. And it's not too difficult to come up with fabrications or even, in some instances, from some of the contracting organizations to try and come up with a prima facie case that you are entitled to an SIV under either of the two categories. Or, or even a green card in the follow-on chain migration. In other words, who's to say you become a citizen and you want to sponsor your brother? Well, how do we know he's your brother? There was no birth certificate, so you cook up something. It, it seems to me that kind of fraud is going to be virtually impossible to police. And the same thing would be true of people who supposedly have good conduct records from the police, but in fact are 
criminals of one sort or another, whether that's as a drug trafficker or a people smuggler or you name it. Right. That's another instance where corruption lives large and you can purchase good conduct records. And now if the U.S. doesn't have boots and shoes on the ground to send somebody out to that village or that provincial capital or wherever they were to sniff around and find out whether or not that's a legitimate certificate of good conduct. Well, then you're allowing someone into the United States who's going to pursue his trade, which was crime. In the piece that I write on on the Iraqi fraud, specifically they said that it followed the suspension of this program for the Iraqis, followed the unsealing of an indictment accusing three foreign nationals of fraud, record theft, and money laundering. And then 100,000 Iraqis under this program are also under... Who have already been led into the... 100,000 Iraqis led into the country under the, essentially the Iraqi equivalent of that P2 program that the Afghans are now eligible for, whose admission is basically potentially questionable because of the fraud. All, most of them entered during the Obama uh, administration. And when President Trump lowered the refugee ceiling and less Iraqis could come through this program or the other one uh, category, PP1 or P3, he was criticized by generals, in the, including General Mattis, that the, he was letting Iraqi who had us behind. And, right, uh, right. and it turned out that now they suspended indefinitely this program because of... It was larded with fraud. And they are thinking of revoking green cards and, and citizenship for some. And let me just say that U.S. track records in that regard really, quite frankly, stink. I mean, I remember uh, some few years ago when it was discovered that huge numbers of people had allegedly defrauded the government in procuring their citizenship. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services set up field offices to conduct denaturalization investigations. The Justice Department set up a unit for prosecutors. But the fact remains that of the tens of thousands who were suspected of hiding their identity or hiding their criminal acts or prior removals from the United States or other adverse information, almost none had their citizenship stripped. It gets very, very difficult for the government to commit the resources to take away something because it's a lot harder than hitting the approval stamp, which is all it takes for an examiner to say you're in. In fact, Congress, I don't know if they actually enacted the legislation, but there was a debate at one point about congressmen trying to force the executive branch to denaturalize at least terrorists. In other words, people convicted of terrorism aren't even always have their U.S. citizenship. In other words, if they're naturalized citizens, have their U.S. citizenship revoked. So on a mass scale, like potentially we see with the Iraqi who pretended to work for us or the Afghans, there's no way. Again, and this just gets back to my point, once they step foot on American soil, it really is almost game over. Did you have one last thing? Yeah, I had one last thing. In in February, when when President Biden took over, he asked for the review of the SIV program for Iraqis and Afghans. And he asked for that to look at fraud issues and ensure program integrity. This report was supposed to be out in August. Meanwhile, what we had is add more numbers for SIV applicants for Afghans to come. 
and we have reduced the employment time and we had made things more accessible to, to And this is before we get the report. This is before we get the report. The fraud vulnerabilities. And are. this was before the chaos that we're seeing every day at the airport. So. Yeah, and so this report was supposed to have been released by now. It hasn't. Yeah. Presumably most of the work has been done. They just haven't released it. So we maybe will have both of you back if and when it's ever released. We may have to submit a FOIA request to get them to release it because I suspect they won't even do it at this point. But uh, thank you, Nayla Rush and Dan Cadman, for joining us for this discussion on the Afghan refugee issue. Several of the things they've written about this issue and that I have will be in the show notes. There'll be links to them so you can read some more for yourself if you want to. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off parsing immigration policy for this week. And I hope you tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you.